Hello and welcome back to the Marketing Mashup podcast. Today, I'm really delighted to be joined by Chris Savage, who is the CEO and co-founder of Wistia. Um, Wistia is a company I've been a fan of for quite a while. I'm a huge advocate of their product. I love all the content they produce, the long-form content, their most recent production brand wagon, which Chris is the host of, um, and then one of my favorite video marketing case studies, 110-100. Chris and his co-founder, Brendan, started Wistia um, in 2006. It's since grown into a multi-million dollar business with over 80 employees. So, Chris, um, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thank you for asking. Uh, for those that don't know, um, and I have done a little introduction, but in your own words, what is Wistia? What does it do? And why should people be interested? So Wistia is a video platform for marketers, so hosting, um, analytics on how your videos are performing. So who's watching what? What are they skipping? What are they rewatching? And then on aggregate, what does your audience care about? We take all that data and we integrate it into the rest of the marketing stack so you can understand the impact of the videos you're making because video can be a big investment and it can also get an enormous returns for you. But understanding that often helps people invest in it. We also have a product called Soapbox that allows you to quickly create videos. It's a Chrome extension. It's free. It records your webcam and your screen simultaneously. And I think most people know us because of the content we make. So we've been making content Probably, we've been around for 13 years, and it was probably five or six years in that we started to make a ton of content, lots of blog posts, lots of videos. And the secret for us was figuring out that we should actually teach about things that are related to our product, but not about our product. So we've taught people over the years how to convert a conference room into a studio, what types of, um, how to create a lighting kit for less than 100 bucks, which, how to shoot with your iPhone, all these kind of simple things that you could, you could watch this content, you could literally use any video platform. But the idea has always been that if we could help people learn and entertain them along the way, then they would have stronger brand affinity to us. They'd care more about Wistia and they would end up picking us, um, hopefully, when they end up picking a video platform. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a really well-rounded roundup. Um, I've I've always been really, really interested in your content and what you've been producing. Uh, we will actually get back to it in a minute because I mentioned you, you mentioned brand affinity as well, uh, which was something that Phil Nottingham did a talk on. Um, one of one of one of your guys from Wistia at Inbound, and I I've, I really did agree with. Um, the brand affinity rather than brand awareness. And you guys are doing a, doing a good job of doing that. Let, let's go back a little bit though. Let's go back to 2006, yourself and Brendan. What made you start Wistia? So Brendan and I had always schemed on things in college, <laughs> you know, like an idea for something really wild that then we would patent. You know, that was kind of like, we would think about things like that. And um, in college, Brendan had actually built a blogging platform and he built it to serve his own needs. Like we had this site that he'd been working on and we were all writing for it and he made it so that we could all log in and do that. He basically built a blogging platform really before there were blogging platforms. And it was really interesting to see that and fun to be a part of that. And I'd worked on a lot of video projects and he'd helped me with those video projects. And so we'd always had fun working together and we're looking to, you know, thinking about what we could start. And the simple thing that caused us to start the business is we saw YouTube which launched in late 2005. We graduated from Brown in 2005. 
And, you know, I had been deeply entrenched in this video world and online video had never been a part of it. Like there were all these online video communities that just never took off. And uh, it wasn't until I saw YouTube and I saw tons of user generated content and tons of pirated content. And um, just anyone could upload anything and it would work. And before that, it didn't work like that. Like you had to pick your format. You had to be technical to make online video work. You had to convert the videos yourself so that they play in QuickTime or, or so that they could play in RealPlayer or so they could play in Flash. But that was actually enough of a barrier that people didn't do it. And it turns out that YouTube was using open source tools, which are the same, the reason why at the time there was like 10 different companies all doing the same thing. It was not obvious at the beginning that YouTube was going to be the big winner. And we realized if this technological shift is happening, that suddenly online video is possible, there's going to be tons of other uses for online video beyond just this user-generated site. And that is what caused us to start. So we thought this is going to be an open field of new opportunity. We should jump in because we're naive. We don't know any better. And why, why not us? That's kind of what we thought. Like, why can't we give this a shot? And it took us from starting about a year to find our way to helping businesses. And that is when the company started to take off. Yeah, definitely. Um, so how, how did you position Wistia at the start? We didn't set out and think we should position ourselves. We set out to think like we should survive. <laughs> and the first customer we got was a business that wanted to, they were looking for a way to share video quickly over the web instead of sending DVDs. And they had DVDs that on the DVDs was videos of surgeries they were doing. It was a medical device company. The surgeries were done all across the world. And so they had to ship the DVDs around. That's how it worked back then. And we started talking to them about like, we could give them a way to do this on the web instantaneously, securely. And that was interesting because that problem, which we saw a, a path to solving with online video, no one else was solving. And so our first customers were all doing that exact same thing. They were in completely different industries and they were doing it in different ways, but they all needed to securely send video around. And so we realized because YouTube was the opposite of that and Vimeo was the opposite of that, there was nothing, basically the only other thing you had TP server, we could create a great easy way for people to do that. And our first probably 30 customers were all that same exact thing. And that took us a few years to get 30 customers, but they're all privately sharing video. The funny thing is we built analytics for them because we had people who were using us for training and they wanted to know when they were doing the training, are people watching the videos? So our customers saw that and they said, Hey, we like these analytics. We like your platform. Can you let us embed the videos on our site? And we're like, no, we're the secure private one. We're not going to let you embed them. That's crazy. Uh, <laughs> And they begged and pleaded, and we finally listened to them, and we made it so you could embed the videos, and you could track how they're performing, and it, the, then suddenly the business took off. And it was like, it said, we went from literally, we had 30 customers, to two months later, we had 200. And we were three and a half years in when we had 30, so that was remarkable growth. And we, we were then struck with this challenge of like, what got us there in the beginning, this private video sharing thing, we thought we were still the best at, no one else was doing. And then the video on your website, lots of other, things, lots of other people were doing it, but no one had the analytics. What do we do? How do we position? We were stuck for a while positioning on both. And eventually we realized we had to make a call. We thought the future of this business is going to be the embedded videos and the more like marketing centric ones. 
And so we kept the features, but we just kind of positioned ourselves around that. And then that helped us grow faster. And we got really good advice along the way that was, uh, as we were struggling to pick which personas to focus on, I happened to go to this conference, Business of Software, and I talked to an entrepreneur who was the CEO of FreshBooks. And he said, what's going on with your business? Do you have any challenges? And I was like, well, we can't decide who to focus on. We have these like five different personas. There's like the private secure stuff. There's collaboration. There's training. There's sales. There's marketing. And he's like, well, which are the best customers? Like, no question that marketing's the best. He said, just focus on them. Well, what about everybody else? You know, if we're getting at that point, like 50 or 100 customers a month, won't we turn off a bunch of people? Like, what if we go from 100 customers to 50? And he said, no, that won't happen because what will happen is the people who's, who expect this to be for marketers, more of them will come out of the woodwork if you tell them it's for marketers. The people who are using it for all the other uses, if it's still the best product, they're still going to pick you. Like these are early adopters. They're, they're not, they kind of ignore what's on your site. They just look to figure out how, how they can get the most out of the product. And we took his advice and it worked. And so then we really centered in on marketing. And then I guess the only other positioning changes we made is we made a mistake a few years later, probably four or five years later, the company had grown a ton. And we'd gone to being, you know, probably close to 10 million in revenue at that point. And we did surveys of our customers. We asked them how they're using Wistia. And they're like, we're using Wistia for marketing and for sales and for training. They told us all the same stuff, even though we said we were for marketing. We're like, oh crap, they're using us for everything. We should go back. We're big enough. We should, we should expand. And we kind of changed the positioning on our site to be we do all these different things. And then what happened is we struggled to figure out where to innovate. Because as we changed that positioning, everything we thought we should innovate on had to be useful for everything. So we kind of just spent like probably like 18 months innovating just on core video delivery stuff, which was good stuff to do, but it different, didn't differentiate us in marketing. And we realized that that had been a mistake and we brought ourselves back. So we spent like a year and a half off and then brought ourselves back to just focusing on marketing, which is definitely the right call. Yeah, no doubt. At what point during your journey did you take your first set of uh, investment? So two years into the business, we raised an angel round of 650000 And it is funny because all of this felt slow when we were going through it. And when I look back on it, having done this for over 13 years, it feels really fast. But um, it took us almost a year to the day to figure out we should focus on private video sharing. And then once we did that, we got our first customer. Then we got our second customer the next month. We got our third customer the next month. And they were all in different industries. And they were all pretty big companies, honestly. Um, we had a $2 billion telecommunications company that was using us. We were talking to HBO. PBS had signed up. Like, this was insane, right? Like, I'm probably... 24 at this time with my mind being blown every day that I'm like sitting on my bed doing a demo with a, a go-to webinar so I couldn't see the camera, you know, like pretending like <laughs> we have an office and all this stuff. And Brenda would be in the other room on his bed doing the same, like listening and doing the same thing. And we just realized, you know what, there's something big here because we're talking to these giant companies and they trust us. And if we are solving this problem, these giant companies trust us. There must be something here. And um, we thought we needed help. And so we had met a few people through our network over that time. And so now we're like 18 months in. We've met two folks we want to hire. We, we, while we're making enough 
revenue to start to cover our expenses, which were very meager, but it was still very exciting. We were nowhere close to being able to hire people who had done it before. So we thought we have to raise money to do that. So we raised money, took us about four or five months, hired these two folks. And then we just stayed at four people for another two years because we ran into challenges. And I started to realize, you know, we went, we actually went from saving money where I was like a few thousand dollars in the bank, like 2000, which was amazing. I was so excited about that. So then we hired these folks, got an office, you know, started paying everybody and started losing 30 grand a month. And I was like, this is horrible. This is the worst feeling in the world. Like we just got through to profitability and now we're back at this. And so we just decided in that moment, like that the greatest mistake that Brendan and I could make was um, not thinking long-term. And we had ratcheted our salaries like relatively high because that's what everyone told us to do. And we ratcheted our salaries basically back to like very little. So we could just maintain our, like we were both living together um, in the same house. My girlfriend was living there. Brendan's girlfriend moved in. There was 10 of us. So it was super cheap. That's the only reason we were able to survive doing this. And we stayed like that for four years. And basically we kept the company at four people so that we could, we could figure out how to like actually market and sell at a price and everything. Just as we we're running out of money is actually that exact moment I was telling you, we went from 30 customers to 200. So we ran out of the first round, went back to our investors and said, good news and bad news. The bank account's basically empty, but the good news is like, we looks like we have customer growth and they believed us and trusted us. And they gave us more money. It took me three days to get the second round done. And then we just went back to building and we got the business back to being profitable. Okay. So what, what, what year was that where you got that second round in three days? 2010. 2010. So we're looking at looking at almost a decade ago now and sort of eight years until you, until you raise the debt financing. So between 2010 and 2018, how did the business grow and what were you doing to grow the business? So once we, basically we got to about break even or profitable, we hired another person and um, then this was like now five years in the, after we started the company and things started to roll. Like you could start to, you could start to see it. Like those, those numbers and that fast growth from 30 customers to 200, they're all still paying us relatively small amounts of money, you know, $50 a month, $100 a month, $200 a month. But it was starting to compound and you could see that this was going to, this could be big. And then as we became profitable, we started to take more risks. So we started to invest in things that don't just give you a short-term return. So we started to invest in content marketing, writing blog posts, making videos, putting on events. We started to invest in company culture. So we started to invest in you know, taking the team on trips and trying, we felt like we had this special thing. And partially because we'd been, we'd been together and working together for so long, we loved, it was so fun. We thought, wow, if we can just keep this up, how, how far can we go? And so we started to invest in all that kind of stuff and it all, it, you know, it took time and then it all worked. And so the company started to grow faster and faster. We got to about 10 million in revenue with a few million in profit, which is obviously a dream business to run. But the entire, entire industry was talking about how like, if you're profitable, then you're probably not growing fast enough. There's probably an opportunity to grow faster. And we'd never raised money and yet, like people are, you know, I'm looking next to companies sitting next to me who are clearly less mature, but they're raising a ton of money. They're hiring big teams. They're launching sweet stuff. They're going really fast. And we thought we were missing out on something. And so 
we kind of switched how we were running the business eventually. We just thought we were wrong. And so we went from being profitable to running at a loss. So we ate into that money we were saving and we started hiring really aggressively, started doing large ad campaigns. We started doing all these other things that seemed like things that a high growth company would do. And at first we thought they were working. And especially when you talk to people outside the business, they ask, how's it going? I'm like, oh, we've got this million dollar campaign over here. We just went from 30 people to 50. You know, we just launched this thing and this thing and this thing. And they're like, wow, you guys must be doing amazing. Congratulations. I'm like, thank you. Yes, so good. Um, but internally, what we didn't realize is we we're creating a ton of complexity and we were creating, we were creating a situation that was actually quite bad where whenever there's something new we wanted to do, there, we didn't have the, we kind of lost the rigor of saying, if you want to do this new thing, and it is really that good, is there something that we're doing that we should stop doing? Is there something that's actually not working? And if we're coming to taking risks, there almost always should be. So should we stop that thing that's not working and put effort into the new thing? That went away. So what you end up having is these projects that are moving forward that are not actually that valuable. And you, don't, you can't tell. And you have great people on them. And that's not a good situation. And now you have great people on a project that's not good. And then you have new people on a project that you don't know if it's going to be good or not. So you don't know if they're great. You don't know if the project's going to be great. It creates these weird dynamics in the business. And it also forced everything to become short-term. So even though the business was growing a lot, we had a lot of revenue, we were doing things that we were saying were long-term things. These, And I'm going to tell you a bunch of real numbers here. But like we had times where, you know, literally in February, we were losing $250,000 in one month. And we thought, that's fine. We know how much money is the bank. We know how long we have. And we're, doing, we're trying to do all our long-term stuff. And our plan is in March, we're going to also lose 250000 But we're actually going to be spending more because the revenue is going to go up. Then you come to March, and you lose three hundred, And that's because the revenue didn't move the way you're thinking. Your short-term stuff didn't pay off. What happens is everyone's like, what the hell are we doing? Oh, my God, we have a problem. Because if the next month is three fifty of losses, the next month is four hundred. Guess what? Your math on how long you're going to be able to survive changes very quick. So everyone gets really stressed. Everyone gets really short-term focused. And we basically were unable to continue to invest in the things that had been so critical in us building the business. Like we lost the ability to take creative risks and long-term risks. And even the content and the things that we had done really successfully, every time you would put a big risk in front of you, you'd say like, well, should we do that? Or should we focus on more conversion? It's like, well, if we focus on more conversion, that probably is the best chance of affecting next month's data. It, it must have been scary at that point where you weren't enjoying it. You weren't profitable. Every every month you were going further and further into the red. Like, what, what, were, you, what were you thinking then? Were you thinking we've got to change something? This is... Well, yeah, well, what happened then is basically a bunch of people tried to acquire us. And that had happened in the past. We'd always just said no, like we love what we're doing. But this time... I was like, hey, Brendan, these three people reached out. They're all from great companies. Should we talk to them? He's like, yeah, I think we should talk to them. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so we were both talking to them, not really talking about with each other about how things are not working. And we ended up in a spot, you know, getting offers, like life-changing offers of if we sell the business, you know, everything will be different is the idea. And it's funny because obviously when most people start companies, you're waiting for this day. You're waiting for the day to get the offer. And so all logic and reason, when I told anybody that this is happening, when I told my family, wow, it's so exciting. Yes, yes, oh my God, you know? <laughs> um, 
And yet we felt very funny about it. And in a weird way, these conversations to us felt like they felt like failure because it felt like if we were going to sell, then we were giving up on this thing we'd spent so long building. And it was funny because it wasn't until we were looking at what we would do if we sold the business. And what we got to was like, we sell the business, we're going to try to start another company. We have an idea of the type of brand we'd want to build. We have an idea of the types of people we'd want to work with. We have an idea of the types of problems we want to solve. Basically, what we ended up saying is like, if we were to build another company, we'd try to build that Wistia back to the 10 million with a few million in profit, and we wouldn't have screwed it up by throwing the throttle down too hard. We looked at each other and we're like, well, we actually still have the business. Maybe we should fix it. And if we should fix it, we should not sell. But then if we're not going to sell, you know, we have those angel investors. People don't invest in companies to get nothing out of it. <laughs> they invest in companies to make money. That's how it works. And so we realized that if we were not going to sell, it actually was going to instantly create misalignment with our investors and with the team because we've been giving the team stock options. And so what we settled on doing was if, it's, if we're not going to sell, that creates a misalignment. We have to fix the misalignment. We have to tell everyone we're not going to sell. We have to solution. We could borrow money, use it. It's kind of like, you know, we leveraged our own business to get cash, to do the buyback. And we told everybody, this is the future. Like, we're going to try to build a lasting business. And if you want to stick with us, fantastic. We're in it for the long term. But if you don't, we completely understand. And you can get your payday. And then we also knew that raising debt would, because you have to be profitable to service debt, we knew it would force us to be profitable. And we actually thought that would get us back to doing better work. And so in our minds, it was like, this will hold us accountable to the exact thing we want to do. And so we raised $17.3 million in October of 2017 and did the buyback. Um, and things have gone very well since then. So uh, how, how have things been since then? It's, it's, it's a few years on. Um, are things a lot better for you? Are you starting to fix those problems that you said were occurring, building that sort of company that, that you said if you had have sold and left? A ton has changed. So the first thing was the deal created chaos <laughs> because people were scared <laughs> of it. And so we had a lot of like team turmoil, you know, people leaving, um, everyone not being sure why. And it took us a little while, you know, probably six months. In those six months, it felt like a long time. Again, looking back on it, it feels really fast. But we got the company back to being very profitable. And then we ended up being so profitable, uh, we went from, we had a half million dollar loss in 2017. And we had six million in profit in 2018. And so that's a lot, that's a big shift. Wow. <laughs> and what that meant is we were actually able to already refinance the debt. So the debt that was was started at a high interest rate because we didn't have profitability, we were able to go to a normal bank and refinance and get it to a pretty low interest rate. And then it caused it instantly did the thing we thought it would do, which it gave us profitable confidence again. So we were able to start to take the risks that we wanted to take. So we did 110 100, our feature documentary about the link between creativity and money, and that went super well. And we learned a ton from it that we never could have learned had we not done it. And it changed who we we're hiring in a really good way that everyone who came in knew exactly what they're signing up for. They're going to be a part of a team. They're going to get profit sharing. We run the business open book. So you'll see how we run the business. We're able to make decisions that we want to make that we think are the right decisions. A good example of this is we just changed our parental leave policy. Every single employee at Wistia, if you go on parental leave, 
16 it doesn't weeks. matter who you are. Like if you're the, there's no more distinction between primary and secondary. If you've adopted or not, um, everyone gets 16 weeks Amazing. and you, you can use it whenever you want. And, you know, we're a relatively small business for 115 people. So I didn't, wasn't even sure at first if we'd be able to pull it off, but we decided it's the right thing to do. And we believe that if we can make this change, others can make this change. And we think it's going to help us hire better folks who want to be part of a company like this. And so these are all types of things that we couldn't do in the old world that have actually been really easy to do in this world. Do you, do you think it's possible to build that kind of business with, without investment? Because obviously you, you guys have been going for a long time. Um, you've, you've got a well-developed product product that works well in in a market that's now established and you're established within that market do you think it is possible to do without that initial funding and and growth that, that you've had over the past sort of 15 years yeah it's definitely possible to do it without it i think there's a couple pieces that are really important so for us the the raising that initial money allowed us to hire two people that we could not have hired but it did cause us to go down the wrong route. So we talked to all these people, they had a bunch of experience like, oh, I bet the enterprise market's gonna be really good for this. We're like, oh, they know more than us. We like listened to them, we raised our prices. We didn't get any deals for five months after we closed the angel round, like zero, when we were getting the customers before. And it's the great irony was like, had we not raised the round, I think we probably, our revenue probably would have grown faster. Um, but the raising the money was a really good thing because it caused us to take it caused us to take some different risks later with how we were trying to grow the business that I think like we probably took them earlier than we would have otherwise. A lot of this is the psychology of the founder. So I think for Brendan and I, for us to take the right types of risks, we need to be profitable. I'm sure there's tons of people like us. I also think there's a lot of people who don't need that and they're comfortable. Like they're like, it's someone else's money. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's okay. Take the risk. That's not how I am. Like when I take someone else's money, I don't want it to not work. I actually more, I'm like, I will never let them lose their money. That's just, that was like my mentality and everybody's different. And so I think thinking through that is really important. And then I think the, the actual, the secret to success is just persistence. That's it. And, you know, my belief, like I've talked to probably thousands of entrepreneurs at this point, almost always people have good ideas about like, Things are going to change. What's going to come next? And if they don't have a good idea, you, can, you know, if you talk to a few potential customers, it doesn't take even that many. It takes like 10. You can kind of figure it out. Um, people are afraid to talk to those first 10. But if you talk to 10 or 20 people and they all think, like, I'm never going to be a customer's thing, you got to be able to reflect and say, maybe I should try something different. But if you're still trying and you try something different, that gives you the opportunity to get lucky. Like, that gives you the opportunity to build the network. Like, persistence is... The factor I think that is, it is the thing that like you can run into a huge headway. And I mean, over the years, honestly, we've run into some enormous headways at different points in time. We're like entire, the entire way that social networks work changed. We used to be the best, uh, the best way to embed videos in Facebook and Twitter used to be Wistia because they had no native video at all. So people would sign up to us explicitly for that. And then they switched it and they added native platforms. They stopped Wistia player videos from playing in there for a while. And so it's like, what do you do when that happens? That's the type of thing that could kill a business, you would think. Turns out, 
you just got to be persistent, play the long game, figure out what's going on, realize like, oh, there's a different way for us to interact with Facebook and with Twitter. There's a different way to help people manage videos across all of the social stuff that they're doing. But that stuff doesn't come overnight. So that's why it, it comes down to lots of conversations, talking to customers, like, and that's how you figure out how to push through the adversity. And I think it's, the secret is persistence. Like the thing that would have been different, I, I think for us is like, if our market had grown much faster out of the gate, that is where not having money would have hurt us more. Like if you are truly in a, in a, in a new, incredibly fast growth market, then it, it can feel like, I think you have to raise a war chest to compete with the other people in your market. But uh, that, that turned out not, that was not the case for us. Definitely. Uh, I, think, I think your point about persistence is completely true. All the entrepreneurs I've spoken to, spoken to all, everyone that's built a successful business, it, it's the same thing. It's persistence. It's, it's uh, a, approaching problems that, that, that come to you logically problem here how do we fix it your example with natively embedding video like you just got to push through it you've got to push through it you've got to be consistent so i absolutely love that let's um let's move on to talk about some of your content so you mentioned earlier 110 100 um i tell everyone about this i just i think it's incredible i love watching it the the idea that a company make four-part documentary um is just incredible. So for those that don't know, 110100 is that four-part documentary where Wistia, our sandwich video to make three videos, one at $1,000, one at $10,000 and one at $100,000 to see the difference in production and how that would affect the effectiveness of the ad. So not only did you do this incredible experiment on these three ads, but you made the four-part documentary. What what made you think of doing it in the first place? And what was the process? Who came up with the idea? And then what made you just go, yeah, right, we're going to invest in that and do it? So I'd say, like, you know, who came up with the idea? Like, all good ideas, it was, like, a few different things at the same time that we kind of, like, collided together to create the idea. So um, sandwich video who I love and you know they did the launch video for Slack and Warby Parker and tons of other they, they just do an incredible job with creating an ad for a product that's new um, they came to our conference and I was talking with Adam the founder because I had asked them years before if they could make us an ad and they said yes for $17,000 and I remember back then being like Jesus Christ like we're not gonna be able to do that and so I said that to him and he laughed and I said how much do they cost and I was like a lot more than that and I said, will you still honor the price? And he said, no, but I'll do it for free if you let me do it in my backyard and uh, make a video for us for free. And the reason is because the first video he ever made for his own product was called, um, he had this product called uh, Birdhouse, I think it was called. And it was like a Twitter app. And he made a video with himself in the backyard for free. When he told me that though, I couldn't hear the backyard part. All I heard was that he was going to make us an ad for free. So I just like stayed on him. Then I was like, yeah, let's actually do it. Let's do it. We'll shoot content to document the process. And that way, like you'll get some benefit. We'll get some benefit. And, you know, we had done a big ad campaign the year before that had not worked at all. <laughs> we had tried to increase our brand awareness and it, it did increase our brand awareness, but basically didn't impact the business because increasing brand awareness doesn't actually do anything for you if people don't care. And so in this case, we thought let's, document this process and we can at least make something we think our audience will care about. And if it's remarkable and they care about it, they'll tell other people. 
And the team went out there to shoot them when they were shooting the first ad and they came back, they went out to LA and they came back and they said, this is going to be way more than a blog post. This is going to be way more than like a lot. This is like, we are on something big here and we should keep doing it. But if we keep doing it, this is going to be much more like a feature length film than a piece of content. And we're like, you know what? This is what we're here to do is take risks like this and a pioneer, like, let's go. And so they went and they shot more stuff and they came back. We shot a ton of other stuff and it probably went from something that I thought was going to take like a month to a month and a half. And it, instead it took like eight months. Um, and the result was we ended up with this documentary, as you mentioned, four parts that we did a big campaign around. So we released the three ads. We created a trailer for the documentary. Um, we did a ton of PR because people actually cared about this concept um, with Sandwich, all this different stuff. And it ended up working incredibly well, got us a ton of impressions, so it raised our awareness a little bit, but it also just like got people to spend so much time with the brand and it created all this brand affinity. And so what that meant is that people cared deeply about us. We created more brand advocates through the content. And so what we saw was like time with brand was way up and brand search for Wistia started going up quite a bit and then direct traffic went up and the new customer starts going up and you start realizing the word of mouth that we've always had around Wistia, we just encouraged it way more by instead of just doing some ad campaign, um, we actually created content that they connected with. And so it worked super well and it was just really fun, honestly, and genuinely like delightful for us. Like I'm so proud of it as a, as a piece of content. Um, yeah. Well, what, why do you think that long form content does work so well? I think that the key is that Time with brand and time spent with a company, it's pretty hard to move those numbers. If you think about like all the touch points that someone could have with your company. So like a brand is a combination of every single interaction with a company, right? It's like, if I get an Apple watch, a brand moment is like when the watch arrives and I open the box and there's all the stuff in it. And then it's when I turn it on, is it charged or not? And how quickly does it sync? And then if I have a problem, when I touch support and sales and all these things, and then you like have this product and it's like, how much time am I spending with it? And Apple Watch is the extreme example because it's on my wrist. And so I have it all the time, right? Like basically tons and tons of time. But unless you're an Apple product, mostly people don't use your products that much. And they don't, they're not actually spending that much time with you. And relationships are built over time. And so I think with content, long form content, if you can make something that is really on the money for your audience, and you can make something that they care deeply about, like the niche of folks who are, in our case, it's like the creative marketers who care about both video production, taking creative risks, um, what's next in marketing. There's like this Venn diagram of folks that if for them, 110, 100, hopefully is something that's like entertaining and educational that they would watch during the day and they would compare it to watching a webinar and it would be a thousand times better than watching a webinar or they watch it at night and they would compare it to Netflix. And they'd be looking at something like, do I feel like being like a little bit more inspired about things that are related to my work today? Or do I want to watch next episode of The Good Place? Good Place is great. You're going to watch that a lot. But sometimes you want to go the other direction. You might watch 110, 100. And so it's just, if you end up doing that, it's just so different than watching a 60-second video or 30-second ad or some viral thing. Like Those are these tiny little moments in our day. And so if you can make something that really genuinely connects with somebody in a longer form thing, the impact of the business can be enormous. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I certainly love it. I'm a huge advocate. What were the results of 110, 100 in terms of which ad performed better? Just for people who are interested. Yeah. So when we were testing the ads, the $10,000 video performed best. And which is interesting. And it's worth watching all of them because I think the $1,000 video, I mean, it's an amazing video and it's done by Sandwich Video. And so I've had the complaint from people like, if I spent $1,000, I've never made a video, it's not gonna look like this. Yeah, that's the point. Like that's why we had Sandwich do it because they're the best, right? So you should get the best version of each. Um, but the $1,000 video is quirky and fun and there's like, you know, hand, literally handcrafted animations in it and stuff. The $10,000 video is really funny. Like I think they do an incredible job with that video of not only explaining what Soapbox is really well, which is the center of all of these ads, but they make it genuinely funny. Like you are laughing along and it's entertaining. And I think there's a message in there, which is people don't just want to learn or be educated. They, they want to be entertained at the same time. And then the $100,000 video, they went over the top. It was almost like a send up of like high quality agency videos, right? Like the branding impact of it. There's like this incredible motion graphics for Soapbox. Everything is sparkly. They literally replaced the people in the $10,000 video, because it's a very similar video, it's like these like Russian dolls are all connected, the videos. Um, the $100,000 video, they went and hired actors. So there's like Claude, who's in the $1,000 video, and he's in the $10,000 video. And then there's actors Claude, actor Claude in the $100,000 video. And so um, it's a send up. And I think that that is part of the reason why the $10,000 one ends up performing best, is they almost like sandwich through the game a little bit to prove the point. like. Um, but I still think the hundred thousand dollar video is amazing too, because it feels like, well, the company that's going to make a video like this, the brand impact is very, very impressive. Uh, but actually probably the most impressive thing is that they created a way that all of these link together. And then it was also so interesting for us in the documentary, because the big takeaway is it was actually way easier to be creative on the thousand dollar video than it is on the hundred thousand. That's just simply hundred thousand dollar video, 40 people on set the day that they're shooting. Everything is prepared. Every, every minute detail, we're working like a 20 hour day. You're not taking new big risks at that moment. Thousand dollar video, shoot the entire thing in a day. Should I do it, try a different part of, for the middle of tomorrow? Yep. Should I do it, try a different part for the beginning of the next day? Yep. Does it cost any more? No. And I, I think that it's, we get caught up thinking that creativity, you all oh, will take a creative risk once we're bigger or once we have time. And the reality is like the easiest time to do it is the beginning. I love that. And long forms content isn't something that just stopped at 110, 100. You've also, also recently released Brandwagon, which I love. Talk me a bit about that and, and why you decided to do that as well. Yeah. So I think partially because of the 110, 100, we ended up in all these conversations with people about brand. How do you build a brand? What's part of a brand? And brand feels mysterious to folks. And it feels like a big company thing. And yet, whether or not you like it, Every company has a brand. Your brand can be that your company sucks, but you have a brand. And um, so how do you actually invest in it? What are the best do? What are, what are people doing next? Like we thought it'd be fun to go and investigate that and to try, we, we would try a different format this time. And so it's kind of like a talk show for marketers where I'm hosting it. I go and do these interviews with different folks who are experts at whatever each different thing is that we're going to be thinking about. And then we have... Um, uh, kind of like a part of the show that's like literally more like a Tonight Show set, which sets up the interviews and also allows us to have other different types of cutaways and things. And so that's where we can like let the Wistia personality shine through and take a bunch of risks. 
And over time, I've seen even, you know, we've done, I think we've released seven episodes at this point. We've done, we've gotten more comfortable and it's been easier to do the whole thing because the format is the same every time. We know which set we're going to. We know how we're getting set up. We know what to tell the guests. We know how to do the stuff in front of the desk that it's crazy. But even for us, like the production time, first episode, product, total production time of shooting, total shooting time. And, trust, and obviously there's a lot of editing behind it and there's tons of pre-production in front of it. But the shoot was probably six hours for the first episode in total. And the episodes now are like about two hours or less for the whole thing. So it's, it, yeah, it's crazy. Just figuring out the format, figuring out how to make it repeatable has made it so much easier. And I think the episodes are getting better because we're all getting more comfortable and kind of finding our way to, you know, how, for me, how to host these things, how to ask the right questions, how to take the right risks with the cutaways. The team has gotten more comfortable taking risks. So the last episode, uh, they surprised me with an animal handler. I saw. Which was insane. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite out of the animals? Oh my God. Uh, what was my favorite? The snake scared the crap out of me. It was so giant. <laughs> yeah. And I saw the box sitting there and it looked kind of small and I kind of, but I, you know, there was like a thing tied around it. So it's like, I think there's probably a snake in there. Then he took the snake out and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this <laughs> thing is so giant. And he, and he literally sets it up. Yeah. This was given to us because it was a face striker. Like, Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm so glad um the owl was also so cool i mean the owl was absolutely giant it's like six i thought it was gonna fly away at one point it did try he, to fly he... away yes multiple times and the reaction to the owl was incredible because and you can see some of this episode but um someone on the team molly who was there is is terrified of birds and she asked because everyone knew except me that this was happening she asked like are there gonna be any birds there and she was told no and uh he decided to throw the owl in at the last second and she was like, oh, no, no, you know, no, I can't be here for a bird. I can't be here for a bird. Oh, no, 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 no. So all the reactions to the audience are completely genuine, which was awesome. That's so good. And that, that episode as well with, with Patrick Campbell, who, who's going to be on the pod in a, in a few episodes time. I've really been impressed with the content they're making. And what they were saying is it might cost you £10,000 to do an ebook, but then it also might, um, it also might cost 10,000 once you got your process down to create a, a video series why why isn't everyone doing it yeah so i mean patrick's amazing those guys are pioneering and i think the it's so cool to like hear about how data driven they are on the production side and i think most people just don't think about it this way right like you think about it as like well how am i going to make a series that's going to take forever i'm going to have to do it forever but the reality is you don't the smart move is you make a season why do you make a season because you have a moment to check in on it because you're going to learn stuff you're going to put it out there. By episode five, you're going to realize part of this thing we're doing, we need to change. If you have 50 more episodes that are lined up, you're kind of screwed. You, ha you have to have breakpoints. And I think because part of this is the methodology. Part of it is that people don't understand the impact it can have. And they're not thinking about brand affinity. Like they're thinking about brand awareness. You know, they're thinking about stuff going viral. And they're not thinking about like that actually the easiest thing to do is to get people to spend way more time with your brand. This is what the best brands in the world are doing, right? You know, Netflix used to be a DVD rental service. That's not what we think of Netflix as anymore. The content you get every day, that live content that people are creating. Patagonia. Patagonia is, um, you know, sells clothing and they make documentaries about the climate 
And that's like, they, they put their values forward and that's what people connect to. And I think the best brands in the world have figured out that making the right content allows them to build a strong connection with everybody. And I think that everyone's just like, the way that people are clued into this is with podcasts. I talk to a lot of people who are like, well, I should make a podcast. And you're like, why? Well, everyone's doing it. I know I, know I should do it. It's like, well, what benefit does it have? I don't know. You just don't have the language. The, the answer is you're making a podcast. It's for the right audience. Guess what's happening? It's one of the most personal, intimate ways that someone can communicate with you. And if you're, if you're out you know, going for a run, you're walking to work, you're doing your commute, and you're spending the time listening to people talking, you are building a brand connection. That is what is happening. And you're building a relationship. And that's brand affinity. And I think, um, I think that it's just like one of those things that when you click and you see it, you're like, that's why I like this. That's why I like that. That's why I don't like that. But it has, it has to click. And then with video itself, everyone has a fear of like how you're going to get on camera. That is like the classic fear. It's the same thing with public speaking. You know, like, well, I don't want to get up in front of a room. And the answer to that is some people are really good at it. You have to find those people, have them represent your brand. And then you have to figure out how to take risks internally. Like if you are the person who you think you want to get on video, you want to do the podcast, or you want to public speak, start with doing it inside your company. Start doing it with friends you already know. Start to take risks in places where there's like lit literally no downside. And as you get confident, that can translate into um, a confidence that you, can, that you can communicate more externally. Absolutely. Um, what, what sort of other long form content or different types of projects are Wistia planning for the future? It's obviously Brandwagon's your, your big push at the moment. It's a fantastic series, but what, what other content are you planning next? Because assumedly you're going to keep on going with the long form content. Oh, we're going to keep going. Yeah. Um, there's a lot more coming. There's a bunch of stuff. I can't tell you many of the specifics at this moment, but we have a bunch of stuff for pre-production, a bunch of stuff for already shooting. Um, so you'll start to see more shows and more long-form content coming out um, this year. And then I think we'll really start to ramp it up next year. Mo moving, moving off of the content a little bit, uh, I, I spoke to one of your guys, Jonah, uh, before, before coming on the pod. Um, and he was talking about your, your sales team and the reason you didn't have a sales team until three years ago what were your concerns about bringing it in and why did you then start to bring in a sales team i you know we talked before about the power of, of uh, persistence i think the other powers that one of the secret secret things is focus and it's too easy to say yes to good ideas that come up and actually when you're really focused you're saying no to good ideas you're even saying no to great ideas sometimes and with the sales team you know before that we were 100 self-service all of our effort what, let me take that back. Very early days, yes, we had sales. I did sales. I did outbound sales. I did cold calling. I did whatever the hell I could possibly do to get customers. But once we started to get that traction, went from 30 to 200, we basically, we had self-service starting to work. We had people, one person in sales, but he was trying to help us optimize self-service. That's all he did was like get on the phone, figure out what's working, and then he would try to help us make changes in the product and the process. So we were just laser focused on making this business self-service. And we'd never considered sales. We said sales is something we'd never do. I thought we'd never do it. And that allowed us to stay incredibly focused and get things to be so um, seamless in the onboarding process that we built a pretty big business with, with no sales. But then, you know, one of the problems you can have when you're busy is you don't talk to people outside your own walls enough. Like you don't talk to potential customers. Maybe you talk to existing customers, but maybe you're not talking to potential customers. 
Maybe you're not talking, maybe you're talking to existing partners, maybe you're not talking to potential partners, not talking to other companies. I started to, you know, as I got more outside of the walls of Wistia, I started to talk to more people who had had bad experiences with Wistia. It's like, what are you talking about? Like our support NPS is insane. Like our, our product NPS is super high. Where are these people? Like, why are we not hearing anything? And what I eventually discovered is that there were people who we, they really needed to talk to someone to buy. That's just the organization that they're in. They need an advocate. They need someone who's going to help them through the buying process. Um, and we would basically, they'd say, can we get on the phone? We say, no. And for them, they, that sucks. Like they literally want to use Wistia. They want to buy Wistia, but we're not helping them do that. And so the pre-customer experience, we had enormous gap with how we were treating people. And so it was once you were a customer, amazing customer service. But before you were, if you wrote in and said, I need to get on the phone or I want to understand like this thing that I can't get working or whatever, we didn't, they didn't, we didn't have a way for them to really even contact us. And so the, the reason we started to introduce sales is this actually that we thought we were doing a pretty bad job from a customer experience perspective for anyone who um, would be in the sales process and was not ready for self-service. And then over time, we discovered that there was a whole slew of conversations and people that, you know, everyone basically wants to buy self-service, but there's always something that's confusing or someone who needs help communicating something internally or someone who has huge scale and they know that they could probably use your product, but they think that they might need to pay in a different way or whatever. And so over time, we built the sales team up with that in mind. Um, and it's been amazing. It's been incredibly good for the business. But I think the reason we weren't there was because of focus. And I think the reason we've done it now, and it's been so great, is because you know we've hired people who care about the customer experience and think about every interaction as a brand touch. And so if someone doesn't pick Wistia, we still want them to have a great experience. Because if their next role, or if the other thing that they picked doesn't work, we want them to feel like they can be comfortable coming back and we didn't try to like oversell them. Talking of people and culture, from outside, it looks like everyone's good and happy. Obviously, along along the way, you would have had to make some difficult choices within the team. What keeps you grounded and focused when you have to make those difficult choices? And how has that changed as you've grown? When you say made difficult choices, you mean let people go? Yeah. So, you know, we had a problem for a while where we had people who were really, really good at different parts of the business. And then, you know, they might have been wearing like four hats or something. And then the business grows and everyone has to specialize a little bit. And they're really good at wearing four, but they don't really want to wear two or one. Or they want to wear one. They'll wear one, but they're kind of frustrated that they're not doing more things. Or maybe they're wearing one and someone could do it better than them. And we tried to keep them here because they had been so impactful. And then I watched them get unhappy because they were stuck in their careers. Um, and they love Wistia, the company. They love the culture, love the people that they're working with. We love them. We want them to be here. But they were not progressing at the same rate that they were before. And so that was a very hard thing to realize for me, that that could happen, especially when you work hard, so hard to recruit amazing people. Like we've never hired someone that I didn't think was amazing. That was the whole point. Everyone we've hired has been amazing. And there's people who have not worked out. There's people who have outgrown us. There's people who have gone in different directions. And I, it switched for me at some point of realization of like, well, for all these people's careers, like I want them to grow quickly. And if someone's here for two years, but they have a really great two years and they want to grow in a different direction, that's, that's actually okay. But it's communicating that with people and helping them 
And so regrets I have more are that we didn't have hard conversations with people about their careers. And we didn't say like, hey, the thing you want to do probably isn't, it might happen here in two years, but you shouldn't wait for it. Like, don't wait in your career. Um, and yeah, I think those are the more the moves that have had to happen where it's like, you're doing great work now, but I know what you want to do next is not here. And it's painful for the company and probably painful for you. But I would prefer for you to like, if that's, if you want to go in a different direction and that's not here, go find that thing. And like, we'll be fine. We'll go hire somebody else who is excited about the growth that this current role has. And if we can do that, that's better for us and better for you. But it's, it's always, you know, it's always hard to transition through those things. And it took me too long to realize how bad it was for people to be stuck. And, you know, that's what I feel bad about. It's like people who actually had a huge impact, they felt stuck for a while. That sucks. Like, I wish we had helped them move faster and we had been more confident that, that was the right thing for them. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really interesting. I'll just, I'll just sort of end it with quite an ambiguous, what, what are you most excited for in the future with business, Wistia, and more personally even? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm excited every day. Like uh, when we decided not to sell, we told ourselves we want to solve big creative problems. We don't want to waste our time um, working on things that don't matter or working with people that we don't want to work with. And I'm just so fortunate that like, I love what I do. And I think I'm just, I'm excited about, I'm excited about the future opportunities and challenges for Wistia. And I think, you know, I have two little kids at home. I get to spend a lot of time with them. They're growing up real fast, trying to, trying to be as present as I can be. And um, that's really fun. So yeah, you know, I'm excited for it all. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. These are great questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Marketing Mashup Podcast. For those of you that have made it to the end, send me a tweet at Jay McKinvin and I'm going to send you something special in the post as show my appreciation for you making it the whole way through the podcast. And if you really did enjoy it, make sure you leave it a review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast grow. Thank you very much. Have a lovely day.